0: What is hope? For some people, hope is nothing more than wishful thinking, naive optimism that distracts people from taking charge of their own lives, and instead of hoping for a change, actually doing something about it. That's what Karl Marx thought, at least about religious hope. Marx famously referred to religion as the opium of the people. Religion, he said, is the sigh of an oppressed people, because religion gives people something to hope for, the promise of a better world. But it's also a coping mechanism, and it's what keeps people from actually standing up and doing something about their oppression. And it it wasn't just Karl Marx. Benjamin Franklin had this to say about hope. He that lives upon hope will die fasting. But not everyone thinks so lowly of hope. The psychologist Charles Snyder spent a lot of his career studying and writing about hope, and he came to a very different conclusion. Because Snyder didn't think of hope as wishful thinking or optimistic sentimentality. He thought of it as the thing that enables people to identify goals for themselves and have the needed confidence to do whatever it takes to achieve those goals, no matter what obstacles may come their way. Hope, he said, is the sum of the mental willpower and waypower that you have for your goals. According to Snyder, all hopeful people share three things in common. They're goal-oriented, they are confident in their own ability to achieve their goals, And when faced with an obstacle or when something goes wrong, they adapt and they find ways to overcome. That's two very different ways of thinking about hope. But I'd like to suggest that there's actually a third way of understanding it. In the general thanksgiving, we give thanks for a certain kind of hope. We bless you, the prayer says, for the hope of glory. The hope of glory. It's the defining hope of the Christian life. It's the hope that lies at the heart of biblical faith. But it's not wishful thinking, nor is it some kind of coping mechanism, preventing us from taking responsibility and doing what we need to do. At the same time, this hope isn't about identifying goals and then finding ways to achieve them. So it's neither what Benjamin Franklin criticized, nor what Charles Snyder praised. But what exactly is the hope of glory, and how is it a gift? Let's talk about each of those questions in turn. First, what is the hope of glory? The glory of God is a major theme in the Bible, although it's rarely seen, and even then only seen in glimpses. When the people of Israel come to Mount Sinai, we're told that the glory of the Lord settled on top of the mountain and covered it in darkness. Moses later asks to behold God's glory, but he's told that no man can do so and live. Later in Exodus, when the tabernacle is built, the glory of the Lord again descends and settles there, and again, no one can come near and behold it. All throughout Exodus and and elsewhere in the Bible, the glory of God is both enticing and terrifying. People long to catch a glimpse of God's glory, but they're simultaneously terrified or forbidden from doing so. Because to see the glory of the Lord is to see the visible manifestation of God himself, to look upon beauty and goodness and majesty in its pure and perfect and undiluted form. And for sinful human beings, such a sight is so overwhelming that it could kill you. But people want it anyway, because somehow they know, somehow they know that if they could just see God's glory, if they could just bask in his splendor, that somehow if their eyes could behold undiminished beauty in its purest form, then all of the ugliness of life would melt away, and they would finally know true happiness— In fact, that's exactly what medieval theologians called it when they talked about seeing God's glory. The beatific vision, they called it. The vision that can render someone blissfully happy. And even though God told Moses that no man can see his glory and live, nevertheless, the Bible also suggests that this is precisely what the future holds. The prophet Habakkuk speaks of a day when, as he puts it, When the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the seas. Likewise, in the very last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation, we are told about a vision of a future time when God will make a new heaven and a new earth, and there will be a new Jerusalem where all the nations will come together in peace and harmony. But unlike the old Jerusalem, where the temple served as a reminder of both the constant presence but also the unapproachability of God's glory, Revelation tells us that in this new Jerusalem, there will be no need for a temple. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God the Almighty and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God is its light, and its lamp is the Lamb." Moses could only dream of beholding God's glory. But one day, according to Habakkuk and Revelation, one day the glory of the Lord will fill the earth and those who dwell in the new Jerusalem will look at it with unveiled faces. And they won't just look at it either. Just think about these words from 1 John chapter 3, verse 2. Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him, because we shall see Him as He is. Do you catch that? What John is saying is that the Christian hope is beyond what even Moses dared to dream. Moses wanted to see God's glory. Just get a glimpse of it. But John says that those who are God's children will one day not only see God, but will be like him. That we won't just behold perfect beauty, we will be perfectly beautiful ourselves. The Apostle Paul says something similar in 2 Corinthians. In fact, on that occasion, he actually, he, he draws a direct correspondence between what happened to Moses on Sinai and what Christians can look forward to in the future. When Moses went into the the darkness, the cloud of God's glory on Sinai, Paul says, he had to cover his face with a veil. And even then, when he came back down the mountain, his face shone with such a bright reflection of God's glory that the people couldn't look on him. But those, Paul says, those who have seen the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ will surpass even Moses and will actually come to share in that glory themselves. In the beginnings of that, the beginnings of that are already starting to take place. And we all, Paul says, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. And in the very next chapter, Paul returns to the same theme and he talks about what it means for life right now in the present. When he wrote 2 Corinthians, Paul, Paul had already endured incredible suffering in his own life. And he was very candid and honest about that with the Christians in Corinth, and he wanted them to know how the hope that he possessed as a Christian, how it impacted the way he responded to this suffering. Even though we suffer, he told them, we do not lose heart, for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. If you're a C.S. Lewis fan, you might have perked up at that phrase, the weight of glory. Because Lewis actually has a famous essay called The Weight of Glory, where he talks about this this same theme of the hope of glory and why, why it so often fails to capture our imaginations. Glory, he says, suggests two ideas to me, of which one seems wicked and the other ridiculous. Either glory means to me fame, or it means luminosity. As for the first, since to be famous means to be better than other people, the desire for fame appears to me as a competitive passion, and therefore of hell rather than heaven. As for the second, who wishes to become a kind of living electric light bulb? As he continued to read the New Testament and what it had to say on this topic, Lewis says that he came to realize that the hope of glory, it's not a desire to be famous or to be a shining light bulb. It's the hope that one day we will not only look at God in his undiminished beauty, but that one day God will look on us with the same joy, the same delight, and the same adoration. The promise of glory, Lewis says, is the promise that God won't just approve of us, but that he will actually take great pleasure in us to please God, to be a real ingredient in the divine happiness, to be loved by God, not merely pitied, but delighted in, as an artist delights in his work or a father in a son, it seems impossible a weight or burden of glory which our thoughts can hardly sustain, but so it is. That is the hope that we look forward to as Christians. And as you can see, it's very different from what both Ben Franklin and Charles Snyder had in mind. It's not just some optimistic attitude or wishful thinking that keeps us from taking responsibility in our daily lives. Nor is it a matter of setting goals and finding ways to achieve them. In fact, as Lewis says, this hope is focused on a goal so audacious that it seems all but impossible. And that brings us to the second major point I'd like us to think about. We've talked about what the hope of glory is, but what difference does it make that this hope is a gift? I've often heard it said that modern political ideologies, that they're all in one way or another a kind of secularized version of Christian hope. And there's some truth to that. Just think about the the competing ideologies that dominated the Cold War era. Whatever you think about communism as an economic system, there's no denying that The proponents of communism were appealing to a vision of social equality and cooperation and harmony that really has a lot of similarities to the visions of social peace that you find in the Hebrew prophets. At the same time, on the other side of the Cold War divide were nations like the United States who dreamed of a world where freedom and prosperity would reign in every nation across the world. According to leaders like Ronald Reagan, America isn't just a beacon and model of freedom. It's the nation whose destiny it is to bring that freedom to all those who still live in bondage. And that that vision of freedom, that too is in a way a kind of secularized version of biblical hope. But there is a great difference between The dreams of politicians and what Christians have in mind when we talk about the hope of glory. Because political ideologies are visions of a future that can be achieved through political means. As unrealistic as Marxist utopias may sound, and as badly as experiments in achieving them may have actually ended, they were still visions of a social future that seem to be achievable through politics. And the same could be said for those American dreams of bringing freedom and prosperity to the world. Of course, there's nothing wrong with such a vision. Like I said, there's something very biblical about it. But it's a political goal that we're meant to achieve. Whether or not that bright and better future happens is, really, it's up to us. And you could say the same thing about a lot of the other hopes that, that tend to define and animate our lives. Like Charles Snyder said, we're, we're very goal-driven people, and we often set our hope on, on our own ability to achieve those goals. But the hope of glory, it's not like that. It's not something we can achieve, either as nations or as individuals. The hope of glory, it's not really a goal at all. It's a gift. It's a promise, a promise guaranteed to us by the resurrection of Jesus. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul is once again, he's once again talking about Christian hope. And he says that if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. If it is true that Jesus Christ is still dead in that tomb and was never raised from the dead, then all of this dream that we have about one day beholding and sharing in the glory of God, then it's nothing more than wishful thinking, nothing more than a a fanciful utopian dream. But if Jesus is, in fact, raised from the dead, if what the gospels say is true, then we can trust in his promise that we too will someday share in his resurrection, that our bodies, as Paul says, will one day be transformed into the glory of his own, that we will know the happiness that he knows. Not because we've worked hard at it, not because we overcame obstacles and achieved our goals, but simply because we have received the gift that he offers us, the gift of glory. Of course, this all sounds wonderful, but I'll be the first to admit that more often than not, this is not the hope that defines my daily life. More often than not, I'm I'm focused on much smaller and more manageable goals, hopes that my kids will do well in school, or that a new acquaintance will become a good friend or that I'll be able to afford a summer vacation next year. And I don't think that I'm alone. We often, we often forget about the hope of glory and set our sights on smaller goods. But maybe we shouldn't. C.S. Lewis, in that essay I talked about earlier, he says that we shouldn't content ourselves with these smaller, lesser goods. He says that we are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. I have no doubt that is true. And it's one of the reasons I appreciate the general thanksgiving. Because every time I pray this prayer, I'm reminded that I don't have to settle for the passing pleasures of this life when infinite joy is on offer. I don't have to be so easily pleased. We bless you for the hope of glory.